everybody. Welcome to Bury Me in New Jersey. I'm your host, Sarah Woolerman, and I'm excited to welcome you to today's episode, which is the last for this season. This week, we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Grace Wolf, who is someone I consider to be one of my very first and dearest Alzheimer's friends, meaning she's someone I met due to our shared experience having parents diagnosed with Alzheimer's. For me, my mother, and for her, both her mother and father, just six months apart. I'm not sure if it's because of this very specific kind of shared heartbreak, but Elizabeth was one of those people who I felt connected to at my core almost immediately. We met through Instagram, a place where I found community among other caretakers and children of Alzheimer's. In addition to some very similar grief stories, we discovered that we grew up less than an hour away from each other in South Jersey. I've always admired and envied the way that Elizabeth is able to eloquently share her story from her Instagram account to her advocacy work within our state and at a national level. More recently, she has taken her empathy and caregiving experience and put it to use obtaining her master's in social work. Just recently, she started a full-time position as a hospice social worker at Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care. During our conversation, Elizabeth and I talk about the ways that we've evolved with our grief experiences, how they've driven the direction we've taken in our lives, and the way that love and joy prevails despite profound pain. I do want to give audiences a heads up that we explore some heavy topics today, including death, parental illness and loss, and Alzheimer's. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Elizabeth Graceful. I always kind of joke that you, you're my first official Alzheimer's friend. You know, you were, <laughs> that's how we connected. I thought about how I've been like magnetized to the, to the concept of grief for so long since, I mean, even before I had had a profound grief experience. And I say before I ever had a profound grief experience, but like, if you look at it intergenerationally and ancestrally, like this grief, our grief, our collective grief, it's been alive in our bodies for forever. You know, like how much do we carry of our our parents' grief and their parents' grief? And um, so I guess I've been thinking about it that way, but looking at some of my early explorations of the concept of grief through, uh, I really got into Rumi interpretations. Um, I don't call them translations because they're interpretations of translations from the original Farsi. Um, And there's, you know, there's controversy around that, but I got into a lot of that poetry in my early twenties, maybe even before I ever turned 20. And there was the, the concept of grief came up a lot and there were these ideas that seemed to seemed counter to what I understood at that time grief to mean. So mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that, like that being a shaping force in my experience and of grief um, through through profound losses and an ongoing profound loss. Both my parents were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease within four months of each other in 2010. Um, And to say both my parents doesn't like illustrate what that, I mean, we all have our own experience of what our parents mean to us. And those are very complex ideas, right? I mean, I wasn't particularly close with my mom when all of these things were happening. And, and frankly, um, she was diagnosed in 2010, but, you know, diagnosis is just the point where someone gives you a word that says something that has been going on likely for much, much longer. I can look back to 2007. I was living in Vermont, getting a phone call from my, both of my parents singing happy birthday to me in March and my birthday's in May. This was both of my parents. So, I mean, really like, there's a lot of complexity in that, why I didn't even, why, I mean, it was a red flag, but why wasn't it significant enough of one? And I think it's really, says a lot about my relationship with them and my own coming of age process at that point. Um, How old were you? I was 27 at that time. Um, But in 2004, my dad had had a psychotic break. I don't know if that's even the language that's used anymore, but he had a, like, a two-week hospitalization uh, in an inpatient psych unit, wherein I was 24, my sister was 21, my brother was 19, and we were the ones that were caring for my dad. So even then, at that age, my mom, she wasn't, she'd had lived with mental illness for her entire life. She was not, she would not drive in cars easily. We had to 
drive her across the bridge into Philadelphia to uh, UPenn Hospital mm. or Pennsylvania Hospital to sign a paper. But we were the ones that were really caregiving at that time. And I just, I, I think about it. I think about how I've I feel like I've been a lifelong caregiver on a lot of levels. I found some old records from my mom. She stopped driving and really like engaging in the world when I was about uh, 17. And I found some of the notes recently from her doctor's appointments. And it like has a list of all the places that I would drive her to and drive my sister to because I'm the oldest. So I think honestly, like, with regard to this part of the conversation, that's still a part of my identity that I'm even trying to, I'm still scrambling to find out like who I am and how I became this and how, not how, who I am so much as who we are as a family, if that makes sense. Like how did, where did all this start? I feel like there's still so many little pieces that I'm trying to put together. And I know you talk about that, like just searching for things, whether it's through pictures or clothing, and you're, you're trying to unearth these puzzle pieces to understand like who was your, you know, who your mom is and who you are in relation to her and the journey. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally relate to that. I mean, you know, that's, um, It's weird to me that, you know, whenever I think back on my mom, it's not that I think about her when she was my mom, like it's thinking about her in the context of like, who she was, you know, at this age, or who she was like, at a younger age, and just like, to your point of like that ancestral thing, I mean, because, you know, my grandparents ended up with Alzheimer's dementia much older, but there's no case of early onset beyond my mom. And, you know, there's, all sorts of theories as to what could have happened. You know, my mom had was in and out of hospitals a lot growing up. She had um, multiple corneal transplants. And I remember reading in some scientific journal at some point, they think that, you know, it could be something that's transferred through donor tissue. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. Right, you know, but it could also be something to do with, you know, I like some, they, they linked a lot of cases to particular areas of Germany and she has, you know, German ancestry. Not that we've ever like done like the full research on that, but yeah. It's, and like you said, like that point of like, yeah, this is when you got diagnosis, but it's not, that's not when it started, you know, I mean, my college years, especially my last two, I mean, it was just so being removed from here and then trying to process who I was, who I was growing into, trying to understand my family and some of the dynamics that, you know, I had existed in before and then trying to do it in the space of like, clearly an illness was brewing, but like you said, there was no name to it. Um, yes. And I remember you, I mean, I don't know, obviously you can cut this, but I just remember one of our, our conversations when I was interviewing you for my paper and you talked about you were coming home for a couple of days and your mom was supposed to go to the Italian market and get you. And like this, like, I feel the ache of that in me still of like, you you were upset, and but something was brewing and you didn't know. And it's all of those like you know, looking back things where we feel like the pain of the missed capacity or the missed moment of being able to connect like intimately with what was alive for that person then. And the missed compassion. I mean, you know, there's another, there's another Alzheimer's daughter that I follow and she, you know, she was telling, she kind of told a narrative that was so similar to like what I remember experiencing where like, you know, she had this routine with her mom after her mom had gotten sick where she'd pick her up, take her to go get her hair done, they'd get lunch. And like, you know, on the surface level, it seemed like this really lovely time and it was, you know, like this opportunity, but, you know, she said that, you know, it was, she would get so impatient, you know, and she would be so frustrated during it because it's, it's really hard when somebody doesn't have the mental capacity to get in and out of a car to understand, you know, how to put a seatbelt on and just all the, the things that we take for granted that you're able to do when a person is fully well, whatever that means, right? Or like able to, to move in, in ways that you don't have to think about it. I guess her father pulled her aside and was like, look, um, you got to be a little bit nicer to your mom because, you know, it was, you know her mom said something to him to the effect of like, I don't, I don't want to go out because Lauren gets mad at me or, you know, Lauren gets upset with me. And 
like, and that resonated with me because I remember, you know, I'd take my mom to Marshalls or I'd be like, okay, we're going to go do this thing. And the whole time I would just be like frustrated with her, Mm. Um, you know, and I look back now, you know, because it's like with Alzheimer's, it's so many losses in one. When you look back, you start to realize how much you took for granted in the stage that was before it or the stage that was before that. And like, now I'm like, God, if only I could take my mom to the store still, you know, if only I had her even in that capacity. (laughs) I don't know if I ever told you this story, but did I tell you about what happened when I, well, I took my mom out all the time, right? To Trader Joe's or to Target or wherever we we would go. And it was always harrowing, like extremely stressful. I was nauseous the whole time because I never knew what was going to happen. I never knew if she was going to diverge and like have her own mind. One time, okay. One time we went, do you remember the shoe store JDR? Yeah. Yeah do warehouse she stole a pair of mittens and like pocketed them oh, so we the she like pulls them out like look at me I go back in to return them I come back in the car and she pulls a pair of socks out of her other pocket and it was hysterical but I'm like when did this happen like how did that yeah. <laughs> but the time we went to Trader Joe's and this I think might have been one of the last times where I just knew my nervous system could not handle anymore we are crossing the parking lot to get to the front door from like the far parking lot. And she just stops in the middle, just stops walking. Mm. She doesn't want to walk anymore. This is like a 165 pound woman just stops. And there's cars coming from both directions that are like, why are these people just standing there? Like starting to honk at us. I had to pick her up and carry her across. I don't even remember if we went in the store or didn't go at that point, but you know, you're talking about like, how does one navigate that with the ultimate compassion when you have all the societal pressure? And I think that's what you're talking about. It's like, not only does our person, our loved one, our mothers have a disability, a a condition that keeps them from being able to orient to this constructed reality, but the constructed reality has no concept or, or even most often like a willingness to understand and have compassion to have empathy so it's like people are just gonna hunk because why else would we be standing there besides to make them angry right I think about being an able-bodied person and being abled and also being a caregiver and needing to negotiate the world while also caring for someone which oftentimes means bringing them along and Is it, you know, the person that's disabled or is it the world that's not equipped to really hold all the fullness of our diverse experiences? So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny because I've been thinking about that more too, like now as my mom has, you know, in the stages that she's in, um, because, you know, part of it, it's been such a tricky thing of wanting to share her story what is appropriate to share? How is it appropriate to share it? Um, you know, when when she first got diagnosed, it felt really difficult to to be communicating things when it felt like she was so close to it, and when there was like details that felt really personal, and that it's like, okay, well, it's still her story, you know. And then like as as she's kind of evolved in in the disease, you know, feeling like, okay, well. I want to share it now because I want to make sure that people understand who she is, why this is affecting us and like what this looks like. So that way people do have compassion, but then there becomes that other issue where it's helpful for people to see that, but then they also feel like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see a a woman in a bed. And I get that point, but I'm also like, but then what am I supposed to do? Is my mom supposed to now be hidden? You know, is she supposed to not exist? It's incredibly invisibilizing. And and like why I would ask, I guess, why people have that idea that they don't want to see it, you know, why? I mean, I, I definitely have navigated this very personally in my own family because there were so many aspects of my story that, you know, my journey that I wanted to share because I was yearning for connection, for someone to understand and be able to relate because it is so isolating. So it's like, that's the counterpoint. You want to connect and we have these mediums through which to do that. And 
I know like my sister, she unfollowed me on Instagram at some point. I think I might've told you that like, just Mm -hmm. because she, the pain that it evoked for her was so raw. Like she couldn't, she couldn't bear it. And it caused a lot of anger and tension. And anytime I share, I've shared a vulnerable part. So I've always for myself, like, that's been a major factor in my own grappling with my identity as a caregiver. And I, I fully, I think that is my strongest identity um, because I'm like, what is even mine to share or what is not mine to share? Because it's actually my parents and it's so personal. And it's also because it's theirs. It's also my siblings. You know, and I know that you and I both have had our, you know, ways that our story has been shared in a, in a much larger platform. You know, like I know that you, your family was, um, profile with the New York Times and, you know, you had that experience and you've done a lot of um, advocacy work for the Alzheimer's Association where you're going, you're sharing your story. Um, you know, and so it's like, on one hand, it's like you're allowing people to have this, this understanding of something that there's no other way that they would understand it. But in addition to that, like you sharing your story and how, how Alzheimer's is manifesting in your family, it also puts it in perspective for me because our experiences are so different. And that's another thing that I don't think people realize and appreciate. I mean, it's been helpful to me because, you know, like I've appreciated like, you know, your dad, you know, the videos that you recorded him when he's like really happy and singing and, you know, and, and like the lovely moments that you capture with him in the morning when you guys are, you know, you and your husband like have this morning routine and this ritual. And I just, I love the fact that there's so much, joy and like that you are taking that time to kind of appreciate that and share it because for me it kind of reminds me that even though you know sometimes it just feels like all you're doing is dealing with a disease like there's still that person there and there's still those moments of tenderness and love that like I I know I've taken for granted. Why you brought that up because I feel like it's perfect for what I you know when I really thought about us talking today what I felt like was the perfect depiction of this journey. Um, And if if it's okay, I'll just launch into that. I introduced myself as a caregiver for two parents who were diagnosed with dementia 10 and a half years ago, but I lost my mom in February of 2017. So as you've noted, I continue to care for my dad, but I wanted to go back to that day, the day in February when my mom left us. Do you know how like sometimes in late winter, we'll get a, a snowstorm threat that shuts everything down. It's like, it's not quite here yet. The storm isn't quite here, but they're anticipating that it's going to be enormous. So the schools close and people don't have to go into work and everything just shuts down because we're anticipating getting walloped. Mm -hmm. So that was February 9th, 2017. It was a Thursday. And my mom had been on hospice for nine months. And my husband and I woke up that morning And she was in her bed and she just, she looked different. I washed her. This was the last time I ever washed her. And I dressed her and we were just talking about joy. She had a a shirt I'd bought her, a long sleeve black shirt with the word joy on it, where the O was a snowflake. So it was like this perfect shirt for her and the day. So I dressed her in her joy shirt and carried her out to her recliner chair. And at that point, up until then, like she had the softest skin you could have ever, you would have ever felt. And her cheeks were always like plump and rosy. But this was that day where I started to see the change where, you know, her jaw was starting to slacken. I called everyone. I said, it's going to be this day. It was a snow day. So everyone came over and we had a recliner chair set up in like a corner of the room. So we like were all fanned out around her. And for the whole day, just my sister and my brother and I just laying in her chair with her and and laying on her. And my cousins came, my brother-in-law came, Tracy, who had been my mom's longtime caregiver. She came, a couple other of the caregivers stopped by. Meanwhile, my husband was in the garage making the pine box that my mom was cremated in throughout the day. But it was just like this very profound, like solemn experience. And this is the part I really wanted to tell you. So we're like beside ourselves, just like clinging to my mom. And I can remember that whole entire day, just wrapping myself into her arms. And like I said, her jaw was slackening and she was starting to have that 
that rattling sound that you can hear. She was not conscious at all. She was actively dying. Mm-hmm. I would wrap myself in her arms and her hands were so warm. And my sister was like, I don't understand why her hands are so warm. And I'm like, she just, she's here. She's with us. She, she, she knows that she's holding us. She wants to be with us. Like what an amazing time that we get to be with her. She's so happy. I could feel, but obviously we're like in this profound state of like weeping and grief. But meanwhile, my dad too is here with us. And he, at that point is in like advanced stage of dementia And I brought my notes because I had thought at the moment, like, I'm never going to remember that this had happened. Or I knew I would remember it happened, but how he said it. So he's sitting in the chair beside my mom, who is actively dying, looking out on a room of people that are crying and distraught. And he said, everywhere I look here, I see grief. How can I make it better? It feels like there has been a death in the family. There has to be a way to make it better. It shouldn't be like this. I look around and all I see is a loving family. We all love each other. It shouldn't be like this. I just feel like he looked around and he was distraught because he saw love. He saw family all together being with each other. And he had no idea that his wife was dying beside him. I don't honestly, like, I still don't know how to swallow the juxtaposition of that. And I think just reflecting on what my own journey has been like realizing how much I showed up for him over the days following her death. Every time he would ask, where's mommy? And being present with his experience of grief that he continually relived over and over and over. I mean, we all are immersed and I realized just, I don't know, this is so hard to talk about. (laughs) I realized um, we talk about grief and it's hard to even put a definition to what it is. And I guess I was looking at it today, like I can always like dip down into the incredible and and ravaging intensity of it, where at a certain point it it starts to consume me a bit. And thinking about like the early days after my mom's death. I mean, I was certainly consumed by it, but I was also still a caregiver for my dad. And I was still needing to show up for him for all the seemingly mundane, you got to get up, we got to take you to the toilet, we got to get you breakfast, we got to get you to your day program. And navigating his own, like coming in and out of awareness that his wife and his beloved, his, his heart and soul, this person that he lived for was no longer here with us in bodily form anymore. And so that also illustrates what it is to be a caregiver because you give your whole life over to someone else, someone's else, especially when they have dementia, to help them be safe and comfortable. And yeah, again, it's like so complex to even try to put language to it that that says the magnitude of what all this is like swirled together, the grief and the care and doing the things you need to do in your daily life or keeping up with work, just all of those things that you're constantly working through. It's not masking, but it's like kind of like what you said before that like the world doesn't really give a lot of space for this. I don't know if it's like a survival mode. I don't know if it's an instinctual thing, but this idea that like you have to keep moving even though the grief is happening and you get so consumed in maintaining normalcy that when you stop and you think about like underneath all this I'm still really hurting this is still a wound that is so open for me Mm -hmm. it happened even yesterday where I was just kind of like I have so many things on my plate and I'm trying to get all this stuff done and and I'm and I'm working through it and I'm like going down the list of all this stuff and then just at the end of the list was like I just want my mom here like I just want to call her up and tell her this and get to have that compassion or that relationship or that safety net that's been missing for so long Mm. instead of being the safety net. That like brings up so much for me because I think, like I had mentioned earlier, I wasn't particularly close with my mom. And I think because as I said, she lived with mental illness and I didn't understand, but in the last couple of years of being together with her. She was nonverbal. She was mostly just sitting in her chair and she, she had tough points. She had a lot of hallucinations and seizures and things like that. But I spent hundreds of hours literally just laying against her body 
Hmm. And like crying into her back and times she would be like agitated and I could tell she wasn't like fond of the proximity of my body to hers. But other times it was like we were like melded together and I contemplated so much like this. I was made inside this body. And the intense like ache of that, like you're saying you just want your mom. And and what does that mean? Like, what is a mom? Like, she's all the things that she ever was. And like, how do you even capture that? But for me, like my mom was this body, this warmth, this softness that I could feel myself against, that I knew myself through, if that makes sense. It's like, I would literally just lay there for hours. And I also, I often tell people that like of caregiving, the hardest part was not, is not the physical labor of it, but the psychic experience of not being able to run from the contemplation of this person is slowly dying moment by moment by moment by moment. But I think also with grief, I think a lot, okay, I said earlier, like, how do we even define grief? We all have this idea of what it means. The etymology of grief comes from a very old word that means heavy. And you're talking about like feeling it in your chest and how sometimes it bubbles up. And I'm like, well, it's kind of a paradox that something is lost from us. And yet we feel this heaviness. And what I realize it's like, when we are experiencing this this profound loss, the heaviness is the weight of our own embodiment on some level. Like for myself, it's like I feel like like you're saying all these things that are, are on your plate that you have to do and deal with, but yet to just come and like sit in your body and feel how much pain and to like think through the complexity and remember the journey. And when I say remember, it's not just a visual picture. It's like a felt experience of the songs you and your mom would listen to together. And I know you kind of written about that or, or for me, like, I don't know, just, I found my baby book recently, like seeing the smile that my mom looked at me with and remembering like what that must have felt like as a child to have someone like goo goo guying at me and loving me with every single fiber of their being. I guess my point is that it's just a very visceral embodied thing or grief. I think maybe that's why for me, grief has always been at the center of this experience and like thinking about it and understanding its tangibility of it. Because you said grief is something that, you know, we can't really physically hold. But like, I think that's what's interesting with Alzheimer's, especially. It is a physical process when you go through it. You are still holding space for the person, even though you're losing them. Yeah. I uh, wrote down a quote to share with you from Frances Weller. I don't know if you know their book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, but there's a quote in that book that says, we are most alive at the threshold between loss and revelation. And I think that's what I'm talking about, that like profound aliveness, which is a felt experience. You feel that like energy coursing through you. And I think grief is an energy that can consume us, like use any metaphor you want, use, you know, solar or wind or petrofuel or whatever. It's an energetic force. I know in the early days after my mom died, I couldn't move from the bed. I was so consumed by it. And then now there's like a sweet spot where my grief absolutely fuels many, many, many of the decisions that I make, that I have made. It has led me on the path that I'm on. And because I feel that aliveness at that threshold between loss and revelation. So I'm looking for that place where my grief is constantly keeping me at that threshold where I'm like deepening and deepening and deepening and learning and also like feeling the immensity of life. It's been so profound the way that this grief and loss has affected who I am and my life trajectory that like I think about it all the time because like what I wouldn't give to be able to have my mom back. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't even know what my life would look like if I had her. I was 22 when when she got sick and when, when I lost her. I mean, that's how I how I say it. And some people take issue with that because she's still here. And the ways that people try to impose what they think is comfort in a way that's just really restrictive to how it feels. Even the way that, you know, we both feel about certain things may be different. And so allowing for space for that, which is something that I've always appreciated talking to you because, you know, you've always let me just say what it is I feel even if it doesn't resonate with you, or maybe if it doesn't, you know, feel right to you. But when I lost my mom at 22, 
you know, I was just understanding who she was as a person. It's funny because like, I don't even remember so many parts of her, which is almost frightening to me. Like I found letters she's written me where I'll find a card I wrote her and it reminds me of the relationship I did have with her. And I was like, I forgot this bit, you know? I almost feel like what she lost or what died in her, you know, or however you want to put it, like was reborn in me, yeah. you know? And and that's why like kind of what you said, like that thing that fuels you, that thing that goes on. Had what happened to my mom not happened, I can't tell you the number of things in my life that would have stayed the same or that I would have been too afraid to do. And, you know, people are like, you're so brave, you're so strong. And it's like, it's not that as much as it's just like, I am just so hyper aware of how delicate what we've been given is and how it can be gone at any moment. And, you know, sometimes I make decisions and I'm like, why am I like, not impulsive, but doing something that, you know, other people say, like, it would take me years to do that, or I can't believe you've even thought about doing that. And it's like, because I have no idea, I have no idea what, what time is left, what construct there is for me, you know, and I feel like I'm not just doing it for myself, but I've got to, I've got to justify what happened to her. Yeah, I feel like for me too, it feels like, and this is how I'm interpreting a lot of what you're saying, is like, I'm just trying to stay alive alive. I need to stay alive at that threshold. I feel the most close to my mom when I'm in that state of grief where it's not quite consuming, again, at that threshold. For me, it's a state of closeness. It's as close as I'm ever going to be to her again. I feel her coursing through me, you know, and I feel, I feel her with me. And, you know, I lost my mom so many times along the way, it feels like, and who was she ever even? I had this thought, like my nephew had experiences of seeing my mom after she was was dead and he was a little boy. So I'm like, well, who is he seeing actually? Is he seeing her that, you know, that he last saw when she was right before she died? Or is he seeing like the mama or is he just seeing this nothing that's even in a body, this this idea of her? And so I think like that, even like I said before, this notion of mother is so complex so when I say I feel her it's like I feel I don't even know how to describe it but I get it the empowerment that I have to do something that level of aliveness that comes from that you know I feel like it's almost like the blood of two is coursing in you it almost goes to that idea of like where does the grief start from you know like that whole idea the ancestral way that it's built on You know, because I think about it too, like even from the point of view of it's not just my mom. I think about my relationship with with my mom's mom, you know, it it was not always easy. But, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I even think about her in the context of situations that I've been in where, you know, finally I was able to understand and relate to decisions she made and choices she made that when she was mother. Yeah. You know, that her uh, nanny. Okay, nanny. Again, it was another thing where I think that where I don't want to say it was resentment, but it was just not being able to understand why she did things the way she did. But then it made me realize that by having that example, it allowed me to make choices that might have felt too scary to make otherwise. But I had an example to understand. And then by making that choice, it wasn't just a choice for me, but it was also kind of releasing her from her choices that maybe weren't always in her best interest. Just when I feel like I've finally gotten to the point where I'm ready to settle down into whatever my new normal is. And then I'm like, oh, no, we're going to undo it again. Um, You know, and I know that you feel that, too, because, I mean, I know that similarly to some of the, you know, the changes that I've made and evolutions I've made. I mean, you you changed your career. You know, you changed your whole trajectory in terms of what you were doing with your livelihood, you know, based on this. I mean, on some levels, well, I don't want to say I didn't have a choice. I think there are so many moments throughout caregiving where you don't where you feel like out of control, like you don't have choices, kind of like COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I always do like to own that I did choose to come take care of my parents. But with regard to my career, it was almost, it felt almost impossible to go back to anything I'd done before. I was so fundamentally altered from my experience thinking about feeling like what it is, what it means to feel my mom, to feel this fuel of that grief is. And it's like, I feel the power of her love. And that's a love that 
I don't even know if you could tell stories about it because it's just so, it's so primal. It is so raw. I did change my career technically, but I had been a hospice volunteer. I got really interested in hospice even in my very early 20s before my parents were ever diagnosed with Alzheimer's or anything like that because I had another profound experience with my friend's grandmother who I helped to take care of. Um, and I was with her at the bedside when she died. I was the only person with her and I'd been magically guided to be there. I felt this urgency in the middle of my work day that I needed to go be by her bedside. She was in a nursing home at that point. And I got there and they told me that she was dying wow. and they weren't even sure they were going to let me in, but I was the closest to family. I was the only one I was the only one with her when she died. And like I said, um, I just sang to her. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, help me, you know, like praying to the ancestors or what I had no idea what you do. And so yeah. I did feel like this, I do feel like this work has been like a blood calling or, you know, for a long time. And so now it's, you know, fueled by my own profound experiences of grief, recognizing all the intergenerational loss that I bear in my body, everything my parents experience again and what their parents experience. I feel like I'm finally at a place where it's like I'm becoming who I was meant to be. But I mean, I guess I could say we always are. <laughs> like you're talking about these twists and turns and oh, feeling this guidance or this, this call toward something new or that fulfills or brings to life a different aspect of your own experience. It wasn't the experience with my mom that that drew me to wanting to do more death work. It was the experience of my grandmother dying. I didn't know what the process was, but it was amazing to me how intuitive some a lot of it felt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the things that are part of the work of a doula, you know, of a death doula, whatever that thing is inside of you that helps to understand how you're supposed to usher life in and out of this world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, and, and kind of a similar thing where like, you know, I mean, she was, she was in the process of dying for a few days. And I remember I was living in Wilmington at the time and, you know, I knew the end was close, but I kept thinking like, I don't know if it's going to be today because she seemed pretty strong over the last couple of days. And having this moment where I was just like questioning like out loud, like, what should I do? Should I go today? And, you know, a cardinal flew right in front of the window and into the tree. And, you know, whether people believe that stuff or not, for me, I looked it up. I was like, that's interesting. What does this mean? And then like, when I looked up the meaning of a cardinal, like there's, you know, a lot of implications around being messengers and being messengers to write like with death and, I was like, you know, I'm going to take that. I'm taking that as my sign. And, you know, I went home that day and my grandmother passed that night. And, you know, myself and my cousin were the only two people in the room when she died. And it was just this moment of like, you know, it's almost like the way that people say they feel like when, um, when you fall in love or when you just knew. Mm, yeah, I think my first year in training, technically, like, once I started my MSW program, oh, thank gosh, I was surrounded by an incredible, compassionate, just like mystical team of people that I felt incredibly close with. It, it was about a year and a half after my mom's death that I started, but I would have like a flashback to a moment with her and just like instantly I was in hysterics. Mm. And thank goodness I was in a training environment. It was a place where I could safely feel into my own grief experience and how that would intersect with my work because I was supported by such an amazing team of colleagues that could not only support me, but continue to support our patients and their families. Like you're saying, it's like kind of practicing because we're all human. We're all, we all will grieve and have lost experiences. And if we transform the narrative around what it means to grieve as community, you know, like you were saying before, I think so many people just bottle it up and think they have to quickly move on and get back into their life. But if we can normalize um, the state of grief, which is this profound connected state that links us to generations, to our own aliveness, to our purpose, to our fundamental humanity, then I'm saying this because I'm grateful that I had a team where I could 
retreat into their arms while our families were still supported. But I think I'm in a place now where I just feel the profound honor of being able to be and hold presence with people in their own early journeys with grief. I don't, I don't know how that's going to navigate with, with my dad. <laughs> you know, like I, like you said, I'm still a caregiver. Sometimes I just sit next to him and I hold his hand and I look in his eyes and I just feel like the, the magnitude of who he is to me and the person he has been in the world and his love and joy and gratitude and it makes my heart ache yeah. and uh, I think it'll be hard as he, as he changes on his journey and I mean do you feel too like like you said you know, the way that you've worked with your mom and, and that you cared for your mom versus the way that you cared for your dad I mean obviously your relationship with both of them is different because they were different people but I don't know if you felt like that has changed your approach with your dad or has it changed your approach with your dad I would say yes it has changed it because so with regard to my relationship to both of them, my dad, my relationship with him has always felt easy and loving and warm. And, you know, I had such a difficult relationship with my mom that it felt, I felt a great urgency with her to work through or heal. And I don't, I don't think you can like heal with urgency, frankly. I think yeah. it's a process you have to just kind of free fall into. And through the last, especially days of my mom's life, like I just like let go into her body, like laying against her, just free falling through time and space to know what her experience had been. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but I I feel like with my mom, especially at the very end of her life, that she was liberated from a, a life of pain that she carried. I like truly feel and know that with my whole being, like she, she feels like joy to me. And my dad has always felt like joy to me, but there are some edges and especially when he's in a tougher moment, because I do, you know, I, I do have such a, a lifelong experience of him as, as silly and joyful and extremely loving and grateful. So when he's struggling, those are the moments where like trying to like free fall into that. So I guess the way that it's changed me has been trusting those moments or maybe not trusting, maybe that's not the word. I don't even know how to say like with, instead of trying to control my dad's experience, just going along on the journey with him, no matter how uncomfortable it is, because he experiences inconsolable moments of anxiety where he just looks at me or, or Casey with the most like plaintive eyes saying, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? How many times can you hear the, the words, can you help me? Yeah without feeling like you're going to lose your own mind. Like I go through that. And sometimes I just want to be like, stop. Right, right. That doesn't stop it. You know, that doesn't make it go away. So with the most gentleness and he's very responsive to, you know, just like I was saying before, I take his hand, I look in his eyes. And if I, if he recognizes any tiny bit of pain in me, he is there wanting to comfort me, even in his own great moment of distress where he's like, are you, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? Like it was with my mom, she's dying beside him and he's looking on a room of grieving people saying, how can I make it better? Like we're a loving family. We should, we should be feeling joy here in this moment, just not able to conceptualize. So I would say that's, you know, maybe the only thing. That's something that I appreciate about other cultures that can find that like at the end of life, not even with religious implications because sure. like, you know, but just that idea that like we should celebrate yes, or we should. Exactly. That's right. Yes. And you're right. And he always was that way with my mom. Like I talked about having a difficult relationship with her. He never saw any of the difficulty, which on some, like part of parts of my life, I was like, oh, he enabled her. But honestly, I think he saw straight through to her heart. He saw the essence of her being and he loved her with every inch of his own being. He just saw her truly as she was underneath all the layers of trauma and hurt and pain that she exhibited outwardly. He yeah. It, he was almost oblivious to it in a way that like was so safe for her to just be. So I think that it was really what was happening. Like, as you're saying in that moment, you know, I don't know if this is the right place in the conversation, but because I feel like it's such an important part of the story. It's like, I told you, you know, about the day that my mom died 
and everyone got to be there and we never got a snowstorm, but we all got to be together. And then like, as, as everyone sort of left throughout the day at the very end, it was just me and my husband and my brother and my sister, my brother-in-law had gone home to take care of their children. The caregivers had gone, we put my dad to bed and we all laid around her until around midnight when we were just so exhausted that we spread out in the same room, but to the couches and the floor. And then at three o'clock AM, we all woke up at the exact same moment. And I said, is she still breathing? She took a breath and then she was gone. Wow. And she gifted us the opportunity to be with her like as she took flight or whatever metaphor you want to, you know, you'd like to use. Wow. I think I'm going to use that one for now. But I feel inside me now that the, the ache, the grief, but also the joy of, and, and the, again, the, the honor. I don't even know if we have language for what these experiences yeah. are. Well, I always joke, uh, you know, with a, with some friends, like, oh, is there a German word for that? Because I feel like they do a good job of, of uh, figuring out that, you know. Nuanced ways of, yeah. or moments that are, that have like lots of different complexities and putting a word to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. a lot of other languages to that. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> It's hard to reconcile sometimes that like, I know I would not have lived this life as fully had I not experienced that, have had I not carried that. And even the way that I've been able to connect to people. I mean, the way that you and I have been able to connect, you know, yeah. and um, just the opportunity that I've had to feel a closeness to my mom that I don't know if I would have gotten it had she been alive, you know, if I could have been close to her in that way. And it's funny to think about because I think about that all the time. Like, what would it be like if I was, you know, a normal 30 something with a mom, you know, like, what would it be to be annoyed that my mom's calling me during the day? Or would we, you know, would we be friends? Would we, would Would we get along? TikTok dances or something. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you know, my mom, my mom was feisty. My mom was fun. We would go to the movies together. You know, she would come in with a, do you remember those like M&M minis? Like they were like, they used to have them in like the plastic tubes. Yeah. And canisters. And she would, she would have a canister of quarters and, you know, we'd go to, to a matinee movie and she'd pay in quarters and I'd be mortified. And she's like, money's money, you know? And like, (laughs) and it's like, I mean, but like, and it's things like that where like, I even think about for myself, like, you know, how, like who bits of me, who I am that are her that I don't even like even think about or recognize anymore, but you know, would they have manifested if she was still here to, to own them herself? To know this person as intimately and vulnerably and richly as we possibly can. And there will never be an end to that. You will never have enough. I know I will never have enough. Like I will continue searching for my mom everywhere. You know, it's funny. I don't remember where it was, but I said that exact line. And I remember Mm -hmm. writing it, but exactly that. I I search for her everywhere. You know, I search for her in in everything I do and every action I take, it's just, it's just interesting to me the way that like I seek her out and try to understand with my reactions or even just like, you know, like again, you know, I like over the past couple of days, I'm just like, I just wish I could tap into her to know what she would do. You know, what would Renee do? You know, like what would mom do right now? Yeah. You know? And then again, it goes back to that, to that primal, I want my mom. I want my mom right now. And, you know, I, you're right. I don't think that that's ever going to go away. I know to kind of to bring it around, music is a super important um, force in your life and, and mine as well. And probably for so many of us, as I've been listening to all your podcast interviews and everyone has this profound experience or process, ritualistic process, even. Um, I think Shannon talked about that, mm-hmm. the, of making playlists for, you know, adding songs for each of our patients. And um, so um, I was thinking about the songs I used to sing to my mom when it was just the two of us in the last weeks of her life, I would sing this lullaby that her mom would sing to her and I would sing it to her. And I remember one time she just like opened her eyes and sat up with this intensity and cried out mommy. And I just, Felt like even in her state, 
seven, eight years in, into a dementia diagnosis, um, the longing, and this is also something I wanted to share, the, the grief is inseparable from longing. The longing that she had for her mom was so potent in that moment. Kind of taking this to a national level, because like I think about even when this project finally came about. Me having the opportunity or even having the time to do this was because COVID was happening. And then right after I recorded the initial interviews, everything happened with the murder of George Floyd. There was that kind of moment where it was like, why now? Why all of a sudden are we starting to recognize and wake up to this thing that's been permeating in our culture for Mm. ever? But I think the fact that in his final moments, in his last breaths, he's calling for his mother. You know, and just again, yeah, that that connection that everybody understands that on some level, you yeah. know, even if your relationship with the person who is mother is not intact or or doesn't present or manifest in the way that feels as nurturing as we want it to be, there is that pull. And that longing, I would say, for yeah. that, even if we haven't had it and I know I do. I feel like that mother, the concept of mother is the most heart-wrenching, beautiful, sweet, like desperately hopeful concept that we have or word or idea. Beyond the things that we talked about, you know, is there anything else that you, you've been reflecting on that you wanted to say? I was looking back at the playlist I had made of my some of my mom's favorite songs that I would play for her a lot. And I knew every time she got stressed or upset, even like in, you know, as as her dementia progressed, she would always sing Barbara Streisand's I Believe, which is like a medley of I Believe You'll Never Walk Alone. I never really like dug deep into that song because I didn't personally feel that connected to it besides through my mom. Mm -hmm. I always can, I can just hear her voice singing like I Believe. But her other favorite song from while I was growing up was Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All. One cool thing is the first words of that song are I believe wow So both of these songs they start with I believe so there's something there and I I've reflected on this in the past with regard to like what it means to believe and what belief is because I've had incredible like mystical encounters in the wake of my mom's death with other people you know on the one-year anniversary like paying for someone else's lunch when we all went out to lunch to like remember her and it was the 30 year anniversary of that person's mother's death. Wow. And it, so things like that. So I feel that shows me that the line between life and death is, well, like, again, it's like back to that threshold concept, but the greatest love of all, I heard, I don't know if you've ever read Elizabeth Lesser's book, Marrow. It's a story of her sister, her sister's journey and I'll just say death. Um, but Elizabeth was a, um, a blood marrow donor to her sister. And the moment I heard her call her journey with her sister, the greatest love story of her life, I was like, yes, that was my, that was my journey with my mom. It was the mm-hmm. greatest love story of my life. And mm-hmm. I just feel like as a premonition, you know, throughout my whole childhood, no matter what trauma she was living, I think that I, I have always been rooted in that, that idea that the greatest love of all is you know, her children. Thinking about the ways that I have explored and looked for love in my life, but really, yeah, that's the one that I keep coming back to too. And it's, it's interesting how, um, you know, you don't even think about it in that context because you think about romantic love and you think about those relationships and there's such an emphasis on that, but the love I have for my mom is what has (laughs) driven all this. I just like, I'm always trying to surround myself with her. And I know we've talked about this before. I remember when you first came over and you're like, these are my mom's boots and I've carried them around the world. I've carried her and she's carried me. It's that both, you know, yeah. carrying each other. And I do everything I can to, like, I just want to be immersed in her, in that feeling of her. Like, and like yeah. I said, it feels like I'm going to get as close as I can get to her in my life to feel her continually. The way that you share your story and the way that you're open about it has really allowed me to feel like there's space for me to do that too, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and there's ways too where like, you know, it's like, I see the, you know, it's like you, you've set a standard or like it's, um, 
it makes me want to go and do, you know, I see the way that you do the, you know, like between the, the volunteer work, between, you know, your career choices, between the way that you go and share your story with, you know, in front of Congress, you know, with senators, you know, like in, in all the, you know, you, you have all these um, forums that you've talked at and just, you know, that you put yourself out there in a way that you, you put, you, you put yourself out there in a way that is vulnerable and can be difficult, but you do it because you're advocating for yourself, for your, for your mother, you know, you're, you're, you're giving your story to other people to help other people. And it's such a, it's such a hard thing to do, you know, because it's like having to be that exposed, but to do it for the sake of hopefully helping other people. I mean, I, you know, I can't think of something that's more, um, you know, I, I say Christ-like, but, you know, it's hard to say that because it's like, that's not fully how I identify, but it's, you know, but that idea of like, you know, what it means to do those things and what it means to give of yourself in that way. And I don't think about myself that way. So I'm like, part, there's a part of me that's like, no, I mean, I see all the times I got, I get tongue tied and I remember in 2017, I think it was 2017, right after my mom died, my brother and Casey brought my dad down to DC because I was at, attending the Alzheimer's Advocacy Forum. Mm-hmm. We were meeting with Senator Menendez, who's one of New Jersey senators. And I was supposed to like be the the person like, you know, talking about our legislative priorities and, you know, talking at all, just telling my story. And I'll tell you, Senator Menendez lost his mother to Alzheimer's. So I went into that room, never having met him, but knowing we had this shared experience. And I opened my mouth to talk and I could not talk, but my dad is sitting there next to me and I just lost my mom. And I look over at my dad, who's in a wheelchair, and he says, I love you. And that was all that needed to be said. The whole room was in tears and we didn't, we were just in the shared experience. But my point is, it's like, I don't know, just. I think it's not me like saying I'm going to go and do this and fix or change. It's like my yearning to be in community, to like explore and understand why our infrastructures of care aren't already like as human and as, as fully tending to people the way they deserve to be tended to as possible. That, that is like my fuel and the grief, like we've talked about, which is yeah. the, the longing and the grief. <laughs> being so isolated in this experience for so long, but then eventually I found community by sharing on Instagram and, um, and that's how you and I met, you know, that you, you know, you've, you found me, it turned out that, you know, not only do we have this like kind of shared experience, but we're both from Jersey. We're both like, you know, (laughs) grew up like what, 25 minutes from each other. And it, it goes beyond our shared experience because like I've met other people who, have a parent who has Alzheimer's and things like that. And, you know, you had that baseline understanding, but it was just like, it, it just hit when we talk, it hits in a way where it's like, okay, like, it's like killing me softly. It's like the, you know, like you get it in a way that helps me to feel validated and also feel through some of the stuff and, and understand it in a way that I didn't, I didn't fully get before. Yeah, and it's mutual. Yeah. I, I, I don't even think I, I fully have embodied how profound our conversations are because they really they're transformative and I mean I've seen you or I've listened to you having these conversations with other people so I think that's also a quality of you just and but in the context of us this revelatory back again to that quote of like at that threshold of between loss and revelation it's like we have these this profound loss that we're living with constantly and like helping each other deepen into the revelatory aspect. So I do feel this conversation has felt messy at times because it is revelatory, because how can a revelation, it comes in messy ways through the exploration, through the questions that help us navigate into these underworld terrains that we've never looked at so intently before. All right, friend. Well, again, thank you so much. This was great. Same. Thank you. All right. All right. We'll catch you soon. Bye. Once again, I'd like to thank Elizabeth Grace Wolf for taking the time to talk to me about her personal grief experiences. If you would like to follow Elizabeth's story, follow her on Instagram at Upside Down Daughter. Bury Me in New Jersey is recorded in Hamilton, New Jersey, and is produced by Nick Rumasik. Our theme music is P to the A by Anonymous Novels. 
Check out their page on SoundCloud to hear more of their work. Thanks again for listening to our show today and for tuning in for our second season of the show. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to Bury Me in New Jersey on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a review to let us know how we're doing. We'll be coming out soon and letting you know when our third season is going to be premiering. But right now we're still figuring all that out. So stay tuned. Check out our website. Follow us on social media for that information. And if you'd like to provide feedback directly or have any ideas for upcoming episodes, please reach out to me at sarah at barrymeandnj.com. And just so you know, that's Sarah without an H. You can also visit our website, barrymeandnj.com, to learn about ways you can support the show. 